Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Dustin Maddox on the show. Those are D's, not T's. Dustin is the lead pastor of North Fresno Church. A gifted pastor and preacher, Dustin enjoys creating hospitable spaces for people of all ages and backgrounds to experience God's love, to be transformed and equipped in God's healing activity in the city and world. He enjoys reading broadly with a cup of coffee, meeting new people, spending time with family and friends, and most importantly, exploring God's creation with his incredible wife, Robin, and one-year-old son, Beckett. Dustin graduated with a Master of Divinity from Fresno Biblical Seminary and served an associate pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Fresno from 2012 to 2020. In June 2020, Dustin received the call to become the lead pastor at North Fresno Church and is excited about NFC's next chapter of being a Jesus people for the sake of others. This was a wonderful conversation and one I know you will enjoy, so let's go meet Dustin and Baker will take us there. Fresno's best. Dustin, where do you like to eat in Fresno? I love, so my, my number one favorite is La Elegante. So just best asada burrito in Fresno, you know, Kern Street across or just down the street from uh, Grizzly Stadium in Chinatown. It's the best, absolute best. What do you like about it? One, just like the flavor of the asada is unparalleled. It's so good. Uh, And then Abel, who is the owner and and the chef, he's like an artist on the grill, man. Like he's always, he just got, so going there is like going to a performance art like experience because you just watch this guy slang tacos and make burritos and they've got, it's just a well-oiled machine and it's incredible. Don't they have Um, weird hours? They do have odd hours and they, they often close for like a month at a time to i think they go i think they have a house in mexico or something that they go and spend time at or something like that but they're they're often like multiple times i've pulled up and there's a sign on the window it's closed today or closed until the third friday in september or whatever but they're i mean they're they they've been they've been better at posting that sort of stuff on instagram or whatever so mm-hmm. i think their daughter is kind of managing their their social media stuff to keep them up yeah that's it's it's hard sometimes with like taco trucks and certain places that are like small small business like you know if someone dies and it's the whole family that works there they're just like well i guess we're closing for the day and then some some people have more patience than others for that which i would encourage people you know uh, given slim profit margins in food service at that level what you have is a relationship with a restaurant so that creates right. a sense of understanding, which I think is what we need for places like that. So we're going to talk Absolutely. about a few different yeah. things. We're going to start with theological training, which is a fun topic. I'm sure you're, you're probably your most asked about topic. From, it is. From it is. Yeah. People are yeah. like begging for Christology. So <laughs> for the uninitiated, what yes. does theological training and what is that? What does it look like in the 21st century? 
so theological training, at, at least for those going into vocational or, or professional ministry, is is most associated with a seminary degree, which is essentially a master's for pastors. How do you sort of get equipped and trained to uh, lead a community of people uh, that is uh, effectively a crowdfunded nonprofit that also requires you to stand up and uh, communicate for, you know, 20 to 30 minutes each week and also uh, be able to accompany people in the, you know, varieties of life situations that they find themselves in. And so uh, there's, there's different streams in the theological education world that you could go into more academic or more practical. My particular path in the, in the pastoral realm is a, it's what's called a master's of divinity, which is an old school way of, of, of just talking about Okay, how how do you equip a pastor with uh, the types of tools that they'll need in in sort of a jack of all trade sense to be able to understand some of the more academic approaches that will be translated into teaching and preaching and that sort of thing, uh, as well as the like really hands on practical stuff of like how do you marry people, how do you bury people, how do you help people die well. So that's that's a I guess broad strokes. Uh, understanding of of theological education. Um, All right, so let's narrow down then, um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna caption this question as uh, as a the snob question. Uh, yeah. What what is the utility, the main utility, in having a theological uh, education versus someone that went through maybe a training program at their church? started out as a volunteer and maybe moved in a certain place into ministry and now is leading a church without theological training. What's, what's the utility in having that versus someone that doesn't? My reflexive answer is, is essentially checks and balances, uh, like a formal theological training outside of being like <clears throat> an accredited institution and, you know, and all that that comes with in terms of formal uh, education. I think it having a formal training versus <clears throat> something that's just uh, more informal in in terms or or more contextual, I would say, is you know every context has blind spots and every context has certain uh, puts certain emphases on on certain syllables, so to speak, that. That I, when placed in the broader context of of history and the community of of the past, those more localized expressions, informal expressions, can can be blind to some things that uh, can create unintended consequences that can be harmful and damaging to a community, uh, or they can be too highly invested in a singular uh, personality. Uh, you know, it's this person's preferred approach to ministry that they're training people in, which, you know, that has its pros and cons for sure. But, you know, so there, there's a sense of longevity, um, checks and balances, and and just the expectation of it would translate. Like, I 
for myself, you know, I have a, <laughs> a master's of divinity is, is a monster of a, of a master's degree. It's 90 units. But with that, like if I were to work in, uh, you know, uh, if I were to get a job at Facebook, for example, like the masters would translate like, but a, a certification from such and such church in, in Fresno wouldn't have the same, uh, I guess, cultural cachet as a normal, um, or as a, a formal uh, degree would. Yeah, I think what I say is you want to know why you know what you know, because you don't really know why yeah. you know what you know if it's the only thing you know. For me, like growing up in a Baptist church, I didn't understand why things were done in a certain mm -hmm. way. And I didn't know that there were other ways of doing things that were valid. <laughs> I knew there was other ways of doing things, but I didn't know they were valid. And so I think that's <laughs> part, of, part of the shtick a little bit. It's a little bit like when people ask me, or, you know, I'm talking to students about what their plans are after high school and when I encourage them to get out and see the world if before they come back and settle in town or whatever they want to do. It's just for, like you said, context. And I think that's especially important when you're talking about absolute truths, you know, to know why mm -hmm. those things are in place or why those things are emphasized. Seems like it'd be useful. So the then the follow-up question is, um, it's, a, it's a hypothetical. So imagine that you are the president of a consortium of non-denominational seminaries, and you've been tasked with putting together curricula. Um, I'm not going to ask you what that curriculum is, because that's just too cumbersome for us to talk about. But I'm going to ask you yeah, how a, you would hard. approach creating that. Uh, never pondered uh, this hypothetical scenario. Let's maybe start with a, a simplified question. What, how would you, how much would you divide practical and more kind of abstract theological classes? Should it be 50 50? Should there be more emphasis on practical stuff versus kind of the more academic work? What, how would you think about those kinds of questions? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a helpful way of framing it for me to start at an answer, which is I, I think I, I had, you know, I went to, seminary at, at Fresno Pacific and I had an incredible experience I think it's one of the most underrated um, institutions of higher learning uh, but had not without its challenges and one I think one of the things that uh, with the exception of one professor that I had uh, who had come out of 16 years of on the ground pastoral ministry I was over, I think I'm over equipped in the, the abstract, theological, philosophical, like I can do that all day. But with the exception of this one person saying like, hey, leading, leading a congregation takes some really practical know-how in terms of what are the transferable principles from, uh, you know, organizational leadership, uh, nonprofit leadership, business leadership, you know, align with the values of a Jesus community, uh, but can help it uh, be useful in 2022 or 23, for example. And so I think I would, I would definitely lean in more heavily on uh, some of the tools and resources that would equip people with some, some organizational leadership. Like I would, hypothetically, I would do less uh, biblical languages like Greek and Hebrew, which, you know, I had took a 
a lot of semesters of both of those uh, and replace that with, you know, how do you, how do you run effective meetings? Uh, how do you set a mission and vision for a congregation? Uh, how do you, what's the difference between leadership and management? And how do you uh, lead uh, an organization and manage people and, you know, some like basic human resources, like administration skills, like a, a pastor is, is truly a, a jack of all trades in a lot of respects. And, and so having, knowing how to wield some of those tools would have, like, I'm, I'm having to backfill my learning on a lot of those things on the fly. So I, I it would be something like that. Like the, I, I feel like to put it succinctly, I feel like the degree I got hadn't been updated. Like the, the, the philosophy of the degree that I got hadn't been updated since the 1700s. Like it made a lot of sense then, but now in the 21st century, uh, there are just different contextual things that should change uh, mm -hmm. how we approach uh, the same thing. Yeah, and in the 1700s, there were yoke cuts living on that FPU land, uh, so it would have been a whole lot different. You know, and I we one of the things we talk about in education is in K-12 public education, which is uh, this mantra that's Maslow's before blooms. So the idea that you meet mm. people's basic needs before they're... Yeah. Uh, before they can be in a place to really learn. And so may, maybe the same needs to be true for seminaries. You need to learn how to make sure the congregation is functional and then you can get to the theology. But, you know, I, I could see a, a pushback against that, like defining, you know, those principles first and then talking about how to implement them. But that's an open discussion. Let's jump into general church questions. Are churches too focused on attracting younger members? Too focused? Uh, well, it depends on the church. Uh, I think if if churches are exclusively focused on attracting younger members, then that's problematic. But uh, if churches are not responding creatively and uh, with wisdom and effectiveness to the fact that younger generations are essentially voting with their feet and saying, this thing isn't for me then i i would say churches are not spending it churches are not taking that reality seriously enough hmm. can a city have too many churches yes and no i think uh the way i i think about the church within a city is uh you know is kind of like an ecosystem uh an ecosystem needs different facets of life in order to function. And, and so churches kind of represent different aspects of, of that life uh, that connect with, with different people. I don't think any one church uh, can uh, effectively connect with just the various life experiences of the diverse, like uh, no one church can effectively connect with the diversity of life in Fresno. So the, the church needs to be as diverse as, as the city. So that's where the yes comes in because there can be too many types of one type of church. Uh, I think many American churches have, have adopted a, a consumeristic sort of model that, okay, if this works somewhere else, we can, we can essentially franchise it and do it here copy and paste and we'll, we'll do the same same thing and so 
And especially when that is also shaded with conflict, like this church in this way, you know, I didn't like the pastor here or the music there or whatever. And so we're just going to copy and paste the same thing over here with one minor tweak in terms of we're going to replace the worship leader or uh, the pastor, but do the same thing. Uh, then I, I don't know if, if, if that's exactly uh, what, what Jesus has in mind when um, it comes to how, do, how does the church best serve the city? What in your mind should be a church's commitment to a city? What should that look like? Because, you know, they come in, tap the population for con congregants, but what is the what is the give back to the city in, in some sense? My approach would would be that a, a church needs to be first and, and foremost um, oriented towards uh, each each church is, is kind of like a personality uh, and how can the personality of this church best serve uh, the needs of the city? And that a lot of times comes in and through the personal needs of the congregation who's coming in, who are then the other six days of the week living and moving and, and active in their various roles and responsibilities in, in the city. And so like at a very basic level, the church's responsibility to the city should, at least its most direct frequent impact should be helping to make the people who attend that church better citizens of that city. It should be more loving, more sacrificing, more oriented towards other people and, and working towards the common good, um, training people in the habits that help us to respond in those ways. But then in the like specifics of how a church addresses the needs of uh, of a neighborhood of, you know, Fresno has 22 uh, pockets of, of concentrated poverty. And the, the beautiful thing about that is surrounding and embedded within each of those pockets of concentrated poverty are churches uh, who are serving uh, and, and meeting like some of, and addressing some of the systemic needs that can help to alleviate that poverty. So that's one way of of serving. Um, but again, if if a church is only taking and not giving, then it it's it's it needs to look more closely at who exactly it's following. We're gonna get big and broad again. So many people have talked about the need for kind of a new reformation of the Protestant mm. church. Uh, to deal yeah. with things like secularization, uh, people's kind of this artificial division people have created between religious and spiritual, uh, de decreasing enrollment in mainline denominations. So there's two questions here, um, and they're kind of the same question with different auxiliary verbs. How do you think churches should evolve, and how do you think churches will evolve to address some of these persistent issues? An easy answer for the should is <laughs> is that churches need to change need need to address the reality uh that the world changes uh like that somehow that's that seems to be a constant surprise to jesus people and yet that is <laughs> i mean the trope is the only constant is change right like that 
if the world changes, period. <laughs> so how how do, and it comes down to what what some pastors and, and other leaders have, have called the difference between like the mission and the methods. The mission of the church is to love God and love people, like to boil it down to its, to its essence. That doesn't really change. Uh, and that can be embedded in any historical or cultural form and take root. What does change is those historical and cultural forms. And so the methods and approach and tactics and responses and presence of the church in those historical and cultural forms needs to be constantly evolving, um, constantly changing, growing, developing, pick your, you know, pick your word. And, but in a way that, you know, to use a, a term from psychology is differentiated. I, I, I mean, the church um, is exists within the culture, but it isn't. It's its own culture, uh, in in the way that you and I are are our own people. Uh, we we share things in common, but a healthy relationship between you and I would necessitate both of us being our own people, not you catering exclusively to my needs or cutting or me cutting myself off from who you are. Um, but to to live in in a sort of healthy symbiosis where I'm my own thing, you're your own thing, but we can be that in an interdependent way together. Uh, and so that's a really abstract way of, of of saying that what shouldn't change is the way that uh, the the church has been committed to what it looks like to love God and what it looks like to love people as Jesus um, does. And, um, but I think the way that it will evolve is, I think it will be something like the last Reformation where the printing press, you know, this new technology changes everything around it. And the same way I think the internet is doing that now. And I think we're still very much in the inflection point of how all that happens. And I don't, I don't know what it will change. And I, and I don't necessarily mean it's it's churches stepping into exclusively online expressions, although those exist. But it, it, I mean, it's just going to change. It already has changed the way that churches function. Like there's, there's now this two, I mean, my church has a camera in the back of the room that live streams our services every Sunday. And that there are people who watch those services from their homes every Sunday. Like that hasn't been um, a reality before. And so that just changes how the church thinks about things. But it also changes the questions that that people ask and, and the way that um, people are, are formed. When anyone can go on the internet and hear a talk from the world's best communicator, like that changes how I address my particular congregation on any given Sunday. Um, yeah, I think you differentiated, you know, kind of one of the things that I would identify as a general cultural trend on that kind of wavelength was this idea that you do your own research, your own, your, your own expert, you know, that's right. one of the kind of effects of the neo printing press, also known as Twitter. And then there's obviously... <laughs> The element that you talked about, COVID, meaning some people 
just decided it was easier to be home. And so I think a lot of workplaces are dealing with that too, like hybrid schedule. Like right. my wife's yeah. on a hybrid schedule now, you know, and that's just the, yeah, just what it is indefinitely. And so I think the question right. that everyone's wrestling with is how do you have connection when you're abstracted out on a camera? And it's right. maybe the, the question that will need to be answered. There was just to that point, there was an article in, in the Harvard Business Review about how there's this trend in all of these, you know, large corporations where pre-COVID they would have these large off-site gatherings. Like that was the exciting, fun thing to do. But now that has shifted and the exciting, fun, novel thing to do is the on-site. Like everyone's coming into the office. Like how exciting is that? <laughs> Changing gears a little bit from some of the heavier stuff. I'm going to go into my favorite section, which is called overrated versus underrated. I'm going to throw a bunch of yes. things at you. You tell me whether you're over or underrated. Feel free to pass on any of them. All right. First one, uh, Meenad's Pizza. Overrated. Okay. Why? I think just because it's it's our only... I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the top dog of the local option. It just gets more traffic that way. Um, I, I, I mean, trust me, I am, I'm a fan. I, I, I eat it, but I don't think it's, I, I think the hype is more nostalgic. Like we remember eating it growing up. Uh, and so therefore we think it's the best when, when really it's probably not. Yeah. I mean, we're all myopic about things from our childhood. Uh, next one, right. um, the acclaimed series, which for the record, uh, Tolkien told Lewis he didn't understand why people like these books so much. Uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, over underrated. This uh, man, uh, I don't know who this is going to get me in trouble with, but I think it's underrated. I, I think I think Lewis is brilliant and is doing things on levels that people aren't fully tuned in on and is, is doing something absolutely profound by taking like deep soul level, historically transcendent ideas and putting them in the form that ch even children can understand and, and, and conceptualize. So I think it's totally underrated. Mm. Okay. Um, next one. Among next. adults. Among adults. <laughs> Kids oh. get it. Fair, fair, fair. Yeah. Um, next one. And this one I was thinking about recently because I just listened to an interview with Ken Burns, which I don't think this is a selling point mm. for it at all because Ken Burns can be just as boring, where he was describing his uh, amazing uh, uh, quilt collections. Uh, quilts, Ooh. over underrated. Okay. I So I serve at a Mennonite church. And so if I say underrated, I will be um, put to death by quilting needle. So I'm going to say underrated everybody needs a quilt and i i can say that with with honesty i uh i have been gifted some absolutely incredible works of art that are are, are quilts that are also incredibly functional and and uh useful uh and ha you know i've got a, a a nine month old so they have lots of spit up on them too and you know they're they're multi multi-functional <laughs> It is a craft and a skill, and I think my wife had the opportunity to go to quilt camp, and I think rejected it, which I'm sure she regrets now. Shocking. Um, yeah. 
missed missed opportunity there. I'm always impressed. I I would encourage anyone <laughs> if they're uncertain about this matter to go watch the quilt auction at the MCC oh, yeah. Fair at Fresno Pacific and just look at the ornate. I don't even know what to call it. Uh, designs of some of these quilts. It's uh, it's pretty impressive. Obviously, it tends to be associated with a certain age bracket, um, but anyone can appreciate a quilt. Next one, yeah. uh, the Bible translation, the message, which I was um, I was talking about this with someone recently because uh, I'm a librarian now. I've moved out of the classroom. I'm a librarian now, and uh, one of the teachers was telling me how much they hate this no fear Shakespeare thing that's uh, trendy right now, where you have like yeah. a kind of like a paraphrase on one side and then the actual incredibly complicated and somewhat in a different language Shakespeare on the other side. And they, their response was, well, the kids only read the paraphrase. They don't even read when it's, when it's there. So that's a big prologue to saying, is the message too simple? Well, I, I mean, it it depends. It depends on what you're using it for. Like, I think that that matters a, a lot. The philosopher Dallas Willard has this great line that uh, he says, we think that familiarity breeds contempt, but it's really familiarity breeds unfamiliarity and unfamiliarity breeds contempt. Because we think we know something so well that we become unfamiliar with it, and therefore we begin to misunderstand it and and push back against it. And the utility of something like the message is that it gives us a different angle in to to make the text unfamiliar again, or to to make it more accessible, so that you can parlay it into more, you know, more um, in, in, into the Shakespearean, if you will. Uh, and I, I, I think the, the cool thing about the message is that it emerged out of, uh, there, there, there's a practical wisdom to it that Eugene Peterson, who translated it, it, it started, he was a pastor and was, uh, in the early days of, of his pastoring career and was teaching a Bible study. Uh, on one of the letters in the New, New Testament. And he's a language scholar. That's what his PhD is in. And so he was like teaching this Bible study and people were fall, like falling asleep. And so what he decided to do was the next one week, people were falling asleep, leaving the class, whatever. The next week he decided to try and put it in, in their terms and their language. Uh, and immediately people perked up and were more engaged and, uh, you know, it, it, it sort of, uh, shimmered in a new way that, that drew people in. So, uh, I think it has that same ability to do that for people who've been around the Bible for a long time to, to make it strange again, um, and poetic again. And for people who are new to the Bible, uh, I think it can be a helpful way in, um, especially when we, I mean, it's like, uh, I heard Lynn Manuel Miranda once say that, you know, writing Hamilton is was the like having all of those songs, like it's all you know rap is essentially the same thing. Like it's a it's a Shakespearean paraphrase. Like <laughs> so, I I think there's a, a lot of good that can come out of doing things like that. Yeah. When's the last time you've used the King James Bible 
And does it still have value? It's, it it does, and for some of the for some of the same reasons, I would I would definitely say less so though. Um, I I think I, it's not something that, that I regularly read, just because it's I mean it's the it's the language is like our cultural the lingua franca has changed. You know, it's it's the same. It's English, but it's not at the same time. That's not how we talk anymore. And I think if the incarnation means anything, uh, it means that Jesus speaks our language and so, and that we can hear it in a way that we can understand. So, uh, but there is a, there's a great line um, in the King James version of Jesus raising Lazarus that he'd been dead in the tomb for four days. uh, And they, they, you know, pull the stone back in the tomb and he's in there dead. And it has this great line in the King James that says, and he stinketh. And I just get a laugh out of that every time. So anytime I preach that passage, I use the King James uh, just on that uh, that part of the verse, just so I can say he stinketh. Yeah. Or if I want to say ass in a sermon when referring there to you a donkey. <laughs> yeah, well, I've, I've taught at a middle school, so I know about all about the stinketh. All right, mm-hmm. next one. Pour over coffee. Has it had its day? So this may be, this may be a hot take, but I think the new day of pour over coffee is in the automated pour over coffee. Mm. Uh, so I'm I'm excited about how how some of that technology is is progressing or or being recaptured because you can have a a, a automatic coffee pot that makes coffee in your home as good as you would be at a, at a local coffee shop. You can still use their beans, uh, but you get to, to make it at home and, and save a couple bucks. So mm. next one, Brock Purdy. I was hoping we'd get to Brock. Yeah. Totally underrated. Okay. Why? Um, you know, I, th- I don't think there's any, there's, there's nothing better uh, than experience and and for a dude to be a four-year starter and go up against some of the biggest names in college football week after week who he's now going head-to-head against in the NFL like there's there's no replacement for that experience and I think Trey Lance as as much uh, potential as he has doesn't have that same experience I mean playing at North Dakota State is not the same as playing in the big 12. Uh, and, and so I think maybe there's some talent factors that might separate Lance from Purdy, but I think the experience is, is the thing that gives, gives Purdy the edge. Mm. So sad what happened to him. All right. Next one. Uh, the gospel coalition to us underrated. Oh my gosh. Way overrated. (laughs) Overrated. Oh man, I I think it's the most I mean it's it's the next generation's moral majority. It's ideological possession masquerading as theological conviction and I don't think that's helpful. <laughs> yep. I think we can just add a period to the end of that. Uh next one. <laughs> 
completely different subject. Fritters over underrated. Probably underrated just in their, they're not readily available, but I think that's part of the the increase in demand, right? Is that they're a, a seasonal delight. Mm-hmm. And so if they were, if they were a year round, maybe they would be overrated, but since they're limited, uh, limited stock, I think we'll say they're adequately rated. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I have the same philosophy around eggnog, which is if I had eggnog all the time, not only would I be large, but it wouldn't have its same value. All right. right. Next one. Uh, Tim Keller over underrated. I'm going to say, I'm going to say underrated. Well, he's overrated in, in, some respects like i mean he's connected to the gospel coalition which is unfortunate but he's he's underrated in the sense that he is somebody who has figured out a way for the church to to be effective in in global cities which is one of the places where they're least effective uh and um he's uh, I mean, that's what he's committed his life to. And he just recently wrote this kind of report on the decline of of Protestantism and or the mainline and of evangelicals. And it was one of the most unbiased, but really clearly penetrating analysis of where things have gotten off the rails for the church in America and uh, and a path forward. And like it's it's that stuff of his that's that's totally um underrated and maybe his his preaching is is i mean it's really good or uh, maybe his his celebrity is overrated hmm. that makes sense to me next one yeah. uh anesso pizza over underrated i'm gonna say overrated just so i can more easily get the table next time i go yeah yeah I would, I would tend to agree with that. You know, it's hard to hit home runs twice in a row. All right. Uh, and on that note, uh, <laughs> Gabe Kepler, Kepler, how do you say his name? The Giants manager? Yes. Kepler. Is he over underrated? How's he doing? I'm going to, well, I mean, to your point, it's hard to, hard to hit a home run in two out of bats in a row. Uh, I feel like season one was a home run. Season two was three whiffs. And, uh, so we'll see what happens this year. I, you know, I know that some of the, uh, stuff with Aaron judge and, and, uh, Correa was outside of his control, but I, I don't know how's it, how, as a, a manager in the major leagues, you don't like give everything you have to, uh, get that sort of talent on your team. Two more on this. Uh, section. Underrated though. I'm going to say underrated. I'm going to plant my flag. Okay, fair enough. All right, two more in this section before I move on. We kind of hit on this before, but let's just do it again. Uh, reading the Bible in Greek, over or underrated? Overrated. Why? Overrated. It's overrated in the sense of our the scholarship that has brought us our modern translations is really good, and we can trust it. So we can trust the people who have done the work. So it's, it's overrated in the sense that like everybody needs to learn how to do it. I think that's with the internet, like you have access to the tools who can help you do it, which 
which is good and and useful uh but as a like prerequisite requirement is i don't know is is necessarily helpful but you know one of my i mean my greek professor one of my uh, professors is is a member of my congregation and and uses it very effectively in but like he knowing how to use it is the key i would say in light of of the new day that is dawning it's it's less uh effect less it, it's overrated yeah you just got to prioritize your time last one uh the book gilead by marilyn robinson i'm gonna say overrated because i have it's been gifted to me and referenced to me constantly and i've tried picking it up multiple times and haven't ever made my way through it why i think so the the setup is it's a you know a country pastor ge- generational pastor writing a letter to his son before he dies i mean i don't know there's a lot to analyze there maybe i would hope it would be more pathos filled uh, I, I just imagine that thing being more, and I, but it could be, I haven't gotten all the way through. I think what, where I've stopped, maybe, maybe I just haven't lived long enough in, in, in the pastorate to, uh, to really have it sink its teeth into me or something, but I don't know. I just, no, I'm going to back you up on this yet. one. I'm going to back you up and I'm going to okay. say it's overrated well, as well. I look for it. Because you kind of highbrow intellectual Christians out there. There's other good writers. You know, there, there's, yeah. there's a few of them, and I know that they're all super excited whenever she comes out with something new because she taps into Christian ideas. Yeah. And stuff. But read other people, read other people. Yes. There's, it's a big yes. literary world out there, and um, she's great, but she's certainly not the best, and she's one of many. So that's what I would say. All right, last, yeah. last section here. We're going to talk about life of a pastor. Questions. Okay. Here's a here's a fun one. Are are boundaries even possible as a pastor, and why? I think not only are they possible, but they're like absolutely vital. I'm not the type of pastor who wears a you know a collar, uh, but the the old line is that the white square on the black collar is the world's tiniest projection screen, because everyone is putting their <laughs> you know their their brokenness, their shadow onto you, and so you, that happens constantly and um and is is a total i mean that happens in in the real world as well uh but specifically when you have this this role of a spiritual guide and and in a lot of ways you know in a psychological sense a, a parental figure an authority figure you represent all of those things to people and it just gets there's a lot of fuzziness and and feedback uh in there and and i think i'm of the generation um, who has seen the previous generation really fumble the ball on boundaries and haven't had them and led to burnout, haven't had them led to moral failings, haven't had them led to just the breakdown of the community, all sorts of reasons that have, have underscored um, the, the sense of boundaries that are, are needed in order to maintain the integrity, not just of yourself, but of, of the role uh, as well. So, I mean, there's something that I'm constantly trying to uh, um, 
work on, uh, you know, implementing and, and supporting and, and all that. Okay, I'm going to talk about this in reference to a personal anecdote. So um, I had a friend um, who needed uh, to use my car, uh, which is a gas car, to drive uh, some distance to a graduate program in Southern California. And the car that he currently had was this little thing that I call a golf, golf cart with a frame, which is a Nissan Leaf. And uh, the Nissan Leaf, his Nissan Leaf, is a, a few years old, but it has about 80 miles uh, per charge, which doesn't doesn't go that far. And so I use it for commuting. And when I first got the car, I would drive my normal speed to work, which is 70, 75 or whatever on the freeway. And it would deplete the battery just so rapidly to the point where when I was on my way home, I was just cutting it close. I was stressed out all the time. Mm -hmm. And so what I learned is that if I wanted to go further, I had to kind of drive a little slower. Mm -hmm. And that's the only way that I could, you know, kind of get the commute done without being so close to the edge that I might get out and push this stupid thing. Um, and I feel like that's true in a yeah. lot of helping professions, which is this simple right. idea that if you want to help people for a long time, you got to probably do less in the near term, because a lot of people think, well, you know, especially when you're young and you're starting out in a helping profession, you think you can just give and give and give and give and give and give um, because you have the energy for it. But we all get to a place where we recognize there are other priorities. And when we've set this precedent that I'm just going to answer emails at 11 o'clock at night or stay late after work to do X, Y, and Z until all hours and miss dinner with your family, that's that's when that burnout happens. So I think it's just setting the right speed and not depleting your battery so you can make it home is the way I think about it. Lots of things are changing in the church. How do you see the pastoral role changing? You, you know, part of the job is meeting people where they are, and people are mm -hmm. in a different place now than they were two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. What do, you, what do you notice is like the biggest change that the pastoral professions are going through? Some of it goes back to what I was saying earlier, just in terms of the pastor as organizational leader. Like that's a, that's a big one. There's different expectations on what a church is and how it should function and how it should communicate and the tools it should use and uh, the structures that should support it, you know. So becoming more fluent in some of those things, I, th I think, is increasingly necessary, um, at, at least in my experience. I think there's there's also been uh, a necessary kind of cross-training with, uh, with psychology that's really helpful, like some of the, the transferable principles that just help pastors be more fluent with things like anxiety and, de and depression that are essentially all, per all pervasive um, and knowing what that does to people and um, how it impacts the way that a community functions. But I also think that there's a, pastors also need to, the church has, has at least in America in the last hundred years, let's say, there's been this like purity culture for lack of a better term that is like oh we can't be too close uh to like secular people or secular culture like we'll they'll get their cooties on us and we, that would be really bad i think pastors need to know need to be more 
culturally conversant and comfortable and and knowing how to like just meet people where they are like literally like in bars and restaurants and <laughs> like it's changing in, in some of that way like I, I often um, I, I often don't take meetings in my office and will try to meet people in their office or close to where they work or, or something like that. So there's there's just more of that, like, where are you actually living your life and, and how can I be a part of that and, and walk with you? Um, so something like that. Mm. Last question in this section, and this might be a loaded question if people have followed my uh, somewhat public disputes with certain pastors in town. How does one keep one's ego in check when there are people that believe, maybe erroneous, erroneously, uh, that pastors have a direct line to God? I mean, even if my gut level reaction is like, even if people believe that, that doesn't mean you should. <laughs> uh, Easier said or, than done, though, right? Like, but some yeah, people, or, it gets to their head, it's natural. Yeah, whether it's a direct line to God or, or even like embody God themselves. Like that's, I think that's where people with overinflated egos go is, is they, they don't have, <laughs> they don't have the proper like orbit around, around the sun. <laughs> and without that, without that orbit, like if you're too close, you're going to get sucked in and, and, we know how devastating that is. Um, but if you're too far away, life isn't possible. And so that that right orientation and that gravitational relationship is, is really important. So to know that I am not the thing, I am I am the one that points to the thing, but it it it's not me. Uh, and really, that's a a, a a sort of philosophical way of saying, like you need some differentiation. Uh, between your role and your identity. My job title is pastor. I serve that role, um, but that's not the thing that most defines who I am and 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 what I do. I often think about my myself in in a in a hierarchy. There's a follower of Jesus, number one. I'm a husband, number two. I'm a father, number three, and I'm a pastor, number four. So that helps me just by that order of operations know where that thing aligns in comparison to the others. And I think. Some people flip that or invert it, and that tends to not end well hmm. for themselves or the or the people involved. And also just recognizing that like it's a strange thing to stand up with a microphone on in front of a crowd of a couple hundred people at least once every Sunday and talk uninterrupted for 20 to 30 minutes. Like that does weird things to you. And to not pay attention to that is super unhealthy. Well, let's close with book recommendations, my favorite section. Uh, what are two or three books yeah. you recommend? So my all-time favorite number one is uh, East of Eden by John Steinbeck. I, I fully affirm your, uh, your earlier point about, hey, there's lots of great literature out there that like Christians, you don't need to read something that is like explicitly religious every single time you read something. And there's all sorts of gateways into transcendence from all sorts of people. Uh, and <laughs> this one in particular is a, uh, it, it's just beautifully written. Uh, there's like, he breaks out and philosophizes every so often in ways that are incredible, like 
but the storyline itself is uh it's just mesmerizing and uh so i i love east of eden there there was a a season of my life where i tried to read it or i did read it once a year um because i i love it that much but on the on the more um i guess ordinary one book that i recommend a lot is cal newport's digital minimalism uh i think it's it's a just well thought out and highly practical reflection on just hey let's just pause and think about how we relate to technology and how technology relates to us uh, and how it diminishes our capacity for focus and attention in and it, it's super accessible it's super short it's like 125 pages or something like that uh, but it's also helpfully prescriptive and like just in the importance of taking things like long walks and resting well and you know things that humans have been doing in order to be human for a long time so we don't often I, I I need help in that direction. Um, you know, point the finger at myself. I don't have enough self control when it comes to uh, screens and and such. So I I need some structure and support to to help. And that's a, that's been a, a good help for me. Yeah. And on that note, one of the books that we talked about before before we were recording was Stolen Focus by Johan Harari, which is another one on that kind of digital minimalism route. I I you know we were talking about Reformation a little while ago, and I hope. Part of me is hoping that there's a cultural reformation around our addiction to screens that's mm -hmm. going to happen over the next couple of years. And we're going to see that. And I, I, I kind of look at it similar to the situation with the British Empire and opium. So in this case, Silicon Valley is the British mm -hmm. Empire and opium is yeah. our uh, social media stuff. And that yeah. we're all going to see that we've been hoodwinked and, and given some opiates uh, to keep us happy. But at what cost? Our efficiency, our time, our relationships are, you know, the list goes on and on and on. So I'm, I'm about to start preaching. So we might as well end. Uh, thanks for doing this, Dustin. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, thanks, sir. It's an honor. Thanks for listening, folks. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's Best. We'll see you next time. <laughs>